Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Morning. First day of spring. Can always tell by my sinus infection when spring has arrived. Perfect. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you, when you think about your prayer life, how many would, of you would describe your prayers as powerful prayers? Like you're a powerful prayer. How many of you would say in your life you have experienced a difficult day? Amen. Amen. Some, of you, some of you are deep in difficult days even this morning, and I know that. Um, you've been sharing that. Let me ask this, how many of you would like to know how to pray powerful prayers in difficult days? Okay. I thought that might get everyone. So the good news is I've got a message for everyone this morning. We are in a series called Five Great Prayers for Lent, and they're great prayers because they're powerful, honest, and vital prayers, prayers that we can learn a lot from, prayers that we can even begin to imitate in our own prayers. They guide us and teach us how to pray. We've learned how to pray with Hannah how to trust God with our deepest desires to lay it all out on the table before God and to trust that He is good and He is good with us and what we have to share with Him. Last week, we learned to begin to pray with Daniel. We'll pick up with Daniel again. If you got your Bible, grab it and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Maybe you remember where that is. Maybe you need to look it up in the contents again this week. 742 if you have my Bible. That's where I'm at. Daniel chapter 9. Last week we learned a few things about Daniel's prayer life. We learned that he wasn't sporadic, he wasn't erratic when he prayed. No, Daniel had a very disciplined prayer life. Daniel had prayer appointments on his schedule every day with God, and he kept those appointments, and nothing would get in the way of that. Even when Daniel was stuck in this very strange position as a Jewish exile whose home had been destroyed and he had been forcibly taken from his home and brought into Babylon, into captivity, as a conquered person with his people, a conquered people. And at the same time, Daniel is this powerful political figure who holds like in the balance faithfulness to God and his people and power in this depraved, like godless, polytheistic, cruel nation in Babylon. He's stuck in the middle of this, but even government overreach in this time when it's trying to undermine his faith and the habits and the rhythms and the the callings of his faith, even when they threatened his life, Daniel wouldn't miss a prayer appointment with God. In fact, Daniel 6 told us last week, he just continued. He did just what he had always been doing. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. We learned last week that he prayed with discipline, that wasn't just because, oh, I've got to prove myself to God by some legalistic forms of praying at this time in this way. No, it was, a, it was a statement of his dependence, his total dependence on God. He prayed as often as he ate. He prayed as often as he said, oh, my goodness, I need to talk to God about what's going on. I'm going to need this. He prayed with discipline. He prayed with defiance against things that did not honor God, things in the world that weren't as they should be not as God would want them to be. He defied in in that way, in a way that we would hear Jesus later say, pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he prayed with endurance, 
Nothing was going to distract him or deter him from grasping on to trusting in his Lord. He was who he was, I think, because prayer was at the very heart of his life. Now, in Daniel 9, we're going to look at the content of his prayer, not just the character of it, but what is it that he prayed and how can we learn from that? And I want you to see this in verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, uh, this is the exact same timing as last week. Darius is king. He's establishing now the Persian rule over Babylon. They've conquered the Babylonians. They're setting up their government. It's the same time where we looked at last week. Go back and, and catch the message. But there's 120 like governors, and Daniel is one of, of these three presidents over the governors. He says, when he was made king in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. This is the exact same moment with all of the issues, all of the problems, all of the difficulties we talked about last week. Now, there's something for us to relate to here, and it's certainly not that we're a conquered people or that we're exiles. Our homes were not destroyed. Our children were not killed. We're not captives here. But we are strangers in a strange land, in a land that becomes stranger every day. And and we sometimes forget that. We become too accustomed or too accommodating to the strangeness of this world in the face of the God we know and the God who has saved us. We, We have a tendency to forget that we're not to live in the way that this world lives and think in the world that this world thinks. This isn't new. This has been a struggle from the beginning. But I found this week uh, a paper written by Martin Luther in 1520 called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Listen to that phrase. It's a strange phrase. The Babylonian captivity, not of the conquered people Israel, of the church. What do you mean by this? Well, what Luther meant was the same ideas of Babylon, the same things that drove Babylon in the same way that they took captive the people of Israel, in that same way there are forces and powers that have taken captive the minds and the hearts of Christians, of the church. And and, and in this way, the church was choosing to live in captivity in his day, either to a polytheistic way of life or a godless way of viewing life and its troubles in this world. And that seems very familiar to us, right? That is very much like church even today. Millions of people, maybe, maybe entire churches in some cases, people who consider themselves Christians, who consider themselves church people, think exactly how the world thinks, right? They respond and react to the situations in the world exactly like the world thinks and responds. They are formed and they are shaped in what they value and what they love and what they chase and how they treat money and sex and power and politics. They are formed in their thinking and the way they treat these things much more by what they've absorbed by the surrounding culture than they have by the Word of God. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know you do, because we talk about this a lot here, and this is why a lot of Christians aren't that much different than the spirit of Babylon, chasing power, trying to be on top, always winning, putting its allegiance wherever power is, trying to be a conquering people, and they've made themselves, many Christians have made themselves captives, captives to the surrounding culture, and they've missed the entire point that Jesus was impressing upon his disciples when he said we're to be in the world but not of the world. That's kind of gleaned from his teaching in John 17. Not, not that, that there's something to be missed here other than we're to be glowing in the midst of this world. We're to be beautiful and distinct in the midst of this world. We're not to look like this world. We're to live in it but not be like it so that the world may see there is a 
better way of life. There is a better way of treating people. There is a way where your heart isn't slaves to sin and isn't burdened by divisive politics and ugliness and racism and injustice. There is a greater way to rise above those things, and it comes only by, seems by those people who claim Jesus is their king. That, that was the point. But so many Christians have, have missed this, and that's why we've seen many Christians and even pastors fail and fall to moral compromises. That's why many churches look more like the RNC or the DNC than they look like churches, facts. It's why the church becomes increasingly an object of mistrust and misunderstanding in America, right? And that's a big reason, a big reason for the difficulties we face in our days. It's not the only reason. It's similar to what Israel was going through. They were in captivity because of their sins, because they forgot who they were supposed to be, that they were supposed to be a blessed nation that was a blessing to all the other nations because they bowed their knee to the Lord alone, and they, they, they shone His glory throughout the world. They forgot that. They compromised. They became like the world around them, and that's what landed them in the trouble that they're in. But it's not the only reason for our troubles. We know this. Jesus, when he was coming close to his moment of crucifixion, he talked to his disciples and he said, look, there's going to be lots of trouble. The world will not understand you. You will be strange. If you call me king, the world will think that's strange and they won't get it. That'll cause you trouble. He said, as long as you live in this world, it's a broken world. There's sin. Until I return and make all things new, you will have many troubles. Jesus' words, he said, in this world you have tribulation, but take courage I've overcome the world. You will have difficult days, lots of them, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Now it's a long runway to this, but how do we pray now and until Jesus returns in powerful ways in the most difficult days that we face? How can we pray like that? We're going to learn from Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. It says, in the first year of his reign, Darius, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Here's where it starts. Daniel was reading the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and he believed rightly that they were directly the words of God to and through Jeremiah for his people. And he read and he understood that they would have 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and they are in year 68, okay? There are just a couple of years from being released. And you, you kind of begin to wonder, because this isn't like a moment where he's seen things starting to tail off and I can see things are, are going to get better now. We've, we've earned the approval of the conquering nation. I, I, I see how the steps are paved for us, God. What's just happened is Persia, another conquering nation, has come and destroyed the Babylonians and now is setting up their government over the conquered peoples. And you, you wonder if Daniel's beginning to think, how, God? You've made promises to us in your word. You promised us something. I just, I'm not questioning. I'm just asking how. I want to see it. I want to know. No, I know when. That's something more than you and I get. I, I pray like this a lot of times with the question, when, Lord? I know that your promises for me in Christ are sure, but when, God? Because I don't see it at work and I don't see it happening and I am exhausted Daniel has the win. He knows it's two years. Maybe he's wondering, how, God? 
How are you going to work this out? But what's remarkable about, uh, remarkable about Daniel's praying is so often when I get to this moment, I mean, 68 years in captivity, his faith being threatened on a regular basis, having to walk this line of, of beautiful integrity before God and his people while being in this, I mean, are any of us in a place of politics like this guy was in? Like he's having to dance with complete integrity, but dance the political game at the same time in some incredible way, right? And yet he seems to have hope in his praying that there is a future that all that they have been through, all that they have faced, all of the darkness, all of the difficulties, this is not the end for them. That God has a plan for them, for his people. And it is a sure and a steady plan because God is good and he is faithful to complete his promises. How does Daniel do this? Because that's hard for me. And I don't, maybe it's a weakness I have. It's hard for me sometimes to believe that God's promises are going to come. Like I know it intellectually. I go, yeah, I know it's going to happen. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But in the darkest moments, I just feel overcome sometimes with the weight, with the burden of the brokenness of this world and of the brokenness in my own, own life. How does he pray this way? I think there are four things in Daniel's prayer that unlock the key to welcoming the power and the presence of God in difficult days. Four things that he centered his prayer on in Daniel 9 that reminded him again and again that his troubles were not the end of his story. Four things that anchored him and helped him to build this life in the midst of difficult days. And and Daniel 9 is one of the great prayers of the Bible Because it gives us not just this rote form of do these four things and God will do this for you. It's not that kind of a thing. But there's a direction and there are cornerstones, four cornerstones of his prayer life that if we could grasp onto and we could mimic, if we could practice prayer like this, it will welcome God's life and his peace and his hope into your troubles. Here's the four cornerstones. I'll give them to you up front. First is God's words. Second is confession of sin. Third is God's past works. I'm going to come back to these. And fourth is God's glory. Daniel has God's glory in mind. Let me walk through these four things. The first cornerstone of Daniel's prayer is God's word. It's the word of God. It's what he had of what we now have the Bible. And when we don't have the Bible in our prayer, I'll tell you from my own life, when I do not have the Bible open as a part of my prayer life, I do not have the words of God in mind as I pray, I lose perspective. And on a lot of days, I don't even know what to pray. I just find myself, humana, 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 humana. I have no idea really what to talk to God about. And the danger of not interacting with the Word of God when I pray ranges on one hand from having narrow-minded prayers that never moves from my perspective of how I see a situation in my life, in the world, with my limited understanding to seeing as God sees. And on the other hand, prayer boredom, where we just say the same things in the same ways over and over again, and eventually we become just kind of mindless about them. Don Whitney wrote a book called Praying the Bible, and he talked about prayer boredom. He said, when you're bored with your prayers, you stop praying. (laughs) Have you ever experienced this? When you find yourself just, you say the same thing every time, and eventually you go, what am I even doing here? Sometimes it's unconscious. Sometimes you just, you go, it it doesn't hit the value list anymore. 
Because, I mean, it's just the same old stuff. When you stop praying, hear me, when you stop praying, you stop communing with God. When you stop praying, you stop pouring out the, the truth about your life before God and seeking to trust Him with it. You stop receiving from God what He desires to give you when you stop communing with God, when you stop praying. But Daniel knew the Word of God was a lamp to his feet and a light to his path, so Daniel's prayers began with the Bible. And it's saturated with the scriptures, phrase after phrase. I just made some notes here. There are allusions from Jeremiah 25 is here, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Exodus 34, Psalm 44. It's just layered all throughout Daniel 9, 1 through 19. It's a prayer that's guided not by Daniel's view of reality, what he can see, what he can smell, what he can taste, but it's a biblical view of reality because it's rooted in God's words. And I read a pastor making a really sticky point here, said, what I have seen, I agree with this, I've seen this too, what I have seen is that those whose prayers are most saturated with Scripture are generally most fervent and most effective in prayer, and where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming with prayer. I've seen, I think I've experienced that myself. Remember in John 15, Jesus said, abide in me. And my, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you remember this? I want you to see this. The, the first part is the condition for the second part. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The idea is that when God's words are abiding in you, then there is something happening here in which you will ask the right questions and get the right answers. Those things are, are related here. Jesus says, when my words are abiding in you, that makes for effective prayers. Prayers that are, are powerful. Prayers that invite the power of God to do what he wills, what is better than what I will in difficult days. So how did Daniel do this? How did Daniel root his prayers in the word of God? How did he include the Bible in praying? Well, look back at verse 2 again. He says, I, Daniel, I observed in the books... The word of the Lord to Jeremiah, verse 3, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. The point I want to lean into here is Daniel was observing what he had of the Bible. He was observing what he knew was the word of God. He was reading it. He was focused on it. He was trying to understand it. He was trying to understand how does this work? How is it coming about? And what did it do? His reading of the word prompted him to pray. He says he turned his face to the Lord, his full attention. He's in the word of God. He goes, oh, God, would you talk to me about this right here? I, I want to know more. Would you help me to understand? Would you help my heart to, to believe? He was in the word, and he kept those scriptures in mind as he prayed. Bob Fuel in his commentary, wrote, what scripture says is what God says, and what God says is what happens and so Daniel goes, okay, if what Scripture says is what God says and what God says is what happens, I need to know what God says and then I need to talk to God about how this is going to happen. And so Daniel clung to these words in difficult days. He clung to the promises of God in, in Leviticus and in Exodus, in, in the Psalms. He said, God, help me to understand how are these for your people. And if we're in difficult days, in, in difficult days that we're in, we can find ourselves opening our life up to effective prayers 
to experiencing power in, in prayer. It's not just like, I don't know what I'm doing here. You're God, I mean, what do I do with my hands? God, would you do a work if we'll root our prayers where Daniel rooted his prayers in the word of God? Then we're inviting God to speak into our life. It's the first cornerstone. The second cornerstone is this. It's confession. Look at this. Eleven verses in, in this prayer are just full of laying it all out on the table, confession of sin. And, and I want you to, to notice this. We talked last week more about the integrity of Daniel, how Daniel's enemies were looking for anything that they could find to nail him to the wall, to knock him out of first place in this presidential race before Darius. And they could find nothing in his life to knock him out except for his faithfulness to the Lord. That said something, right, about his integrity. And yet when he's praying confession here, Daniel knows he's not perfect. Look at all the we's and all the us's. You can't miss them. There's over 20 we's and us's in this, this prayer of confession. And I think it's, it's more than Daniel just going, you know, I know I've got sins. I know what my sins are. Or I know I've got hidden sins. You get the sense that he is bearing one another's burdens. Do you see that? That he is, he is taking on the weight of the sins of not just his sins, but of, of his people, that he is bearing the sins of his people, that he is his brother's keeper. That amazes me. I don't know how many of us do that. How many of us really feel the weight of another Christian's sin versus how many of us like to criticize them behind their back and judge them? How many of us have hearts that break when we see a brother and sister in Christ walking on a path that does not look like abundant life? And how many of us go, look at that guy, right? And here's Daniel. He doesn't say they sinned. He says, no, we sinned. I am because we are. That is taking on a real family of God approach to life and faith, isn't it? I am because we are. That weighs on me. And our individualized, isolating way of going, yeah, I just walk with the Lord on my own. And I got these people I go to, go to church with. You know? And then I've got you know, church people around, around the world. And yet, when I see people walking in ways that don't honor the Lord, how quickly do we look at them with shame towards them? And look at Daniel, we, and he doesn't like, like fool around. He's like, yeah, you know, Lord, sometimes we do things that are wrong. God, sometimes we don't choose the best path. He's not soft about this. Here's some of the words he uses. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled. We turned away from you. We have not listened. We were disloyal. We've been put to public shame. We broke your law. We refused to obey, and on and on and on. A lot of times when we confess sin, it's, oh, God, I did some stuff. You know the stuff. I won't talk about it. You already know what's on my heart. You know what I did. So, yeah, you can just forgive me again, God. Thanks. Amen. Daniel is treating sin the way sin should be treated. He's calling it out as it is. And the fact is, in, in their time, they're in difficult days stemming from a, a long season of them acting like this. A long season of the, their sinfulness and walking apart from the Lord and doubling down on their sin and refusing to turn to him and repent, refusing to be honest about their sin. And this is on Daniel's mind as he prays. They're 68 years into exile that's a part of the result of their sins. 
and this is weighing on his mind, what good is it for them to come out of exile and return home to rebuild what had been destroyed if they have not at any point in this time and place confessed and begun to deal with the trouble that they have caused? In other words, yes, difficult days are here, and yes, brighter days will come, but why am I not going to deal with the, the difficulty and the habits and the, the, the trouble and the sinfulness that might have led me here in the first place or might have been a part of why I'm here in the first place? Why do I want to bring sinful habits into the brighter days ahead? Let's deal with this stuff. I want to say it all. God, we did this and we did this and we did this. Uh, the author of one commentary said, Israel's not alone. All of humanity in general is very adverse to admitting sins and guilt me absolutely are you adverse to admitting sins and guilt i don't know very many people who go i love it lord let me tell you all the bad stuff i did today no we we do not like to admit our weakness we do not like to admit not just our weakness but our depravity our lawlessness we do not like the feeling of guilt so we don't like to deal with it You want to experience powerful prayers in difficult days, try true prayers of true repentance. One more than that, how about true prayers of true repentance, not just for yourself, but for others? Those who have not yet seen the error of their ways and how their ways not only dishonor the Lord, but are stealing from them life and life abundant, praying that they would experience remorse genuinely Praying not with judgment, but with a we mentality. Not a they, but we. Lord, the brokenness of my friend. Lord, may they see it and feel it so they would turn to you and experience life. Right? And you can practice this. You can practice this in concentric circles. You start with yourself and you go, Lord, these are the areas, the the habits and the patterns that I don't want to take into the next season of my life. And you can pray this for yourself and then for your family. And for the sins that are there, you can pray it for those in your life group, in our church. You can pray for the sins of Christians around our country and around the world. Lord, make us a repentant people who would come to our knees so we'd bring glory to your name by being a bright and shining person and body in the darkness of this world. And so also, Lord, we might experience life and life abundant just as you intended for us to in Jesus. Pray confession. It's the second cornerstone. Here's the third, third cornerstone. Let your prayers be grounded in God's past works. What God has done in the past. Look at, at verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt. Man, he's going way back now, right? We're talking about plagues and locusts and, and, and river turning to blood and a Red Sea being opened and crashing over an ensuing army. We're talking about a long time ago. God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we've sinned and we've been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem... And your people have become a reproach to all those around us. God, you have saved us before. 
God, you have done amazing, great, miraculous works on which we never could have imagined before. We didn't even see them with our eyes. We've heard them in the generations as they've been told, will you do it again? And you wonder, living 68 years in exile, if it ever crosses their mind, is there any hope for a broken, wicked people? We've done it so much and so often and so long, and it keeps coming around. It keeps coming around, and we go, oh, this isn't right, but it keeps, remember the people of Israel, they were just in this circle, man. They do wrong, the Lord would get their attention, they'd say, we want to do right, and they do wrong again. The Lord would get their attention, they'd say, we want to do right, and it's just, they're in this thing, they're in this pattern. You go, is there any hope for them? And the answer here, mercifully, is yes. And we can be sustained in difficult days remembering God's past mercies for his people and God's saving work for his people. Daniel knew the reason God had saved Israel in the past wasn't because Israel was any good. <laughs> it was because God was good. His character was good. His faithfulness was strong. Verse 4, he said, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confess this. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. You do that. You keep your covenant. We break it all the time. But God, you keep your covenant and your loving kindness for those who love you and keep your commandments. Verse 18, for we're not presenting our supplications before you on account of our merits. No, but on account of your great compassion. Do you see his heart? Do you see what gives Daniel hope? He's looking at how God has behaved in the past, and he goes, God, you've done it before. You, you, you opened and closed the Red Sea. My goodness, you can do it again. And for Daniel, don't forget, like this isn't very far at all past the lion's den, and not that far after a, a fiery furnace incident. He, he is also has in mind his own personal history. There's the history of generations before but there's got to be a remembrance of, God, you've been saving me over and over and over again all throughout our time here. When we pray, it's important for us to remember the brighter days that we've had because of God's goodness. That every good, every good and faithful gift comes from God who is above, right? That every bright day, every moment of, of pure joy, every moment of peace in the midst of a world full of trouble has been because God is so good to us. It does us well to remember that. It also does us well to remember that God has saved us in the past. And for some of you, that is the, the salvation of your soul. It is that you were once was lost, but now you're found. It was once you were dead, but God, right? He brought you to life in, in Christ. Or maybe on, on an everyday grace kind of level, there have been situations and moments where God has delivered you when you went, oh, that wasn't me. <laughs> I can't explain it. I was in deep. And something, something happened and it turned and you go, oh, I was the Lord. The Lord is good. It would do us well to remember both the brighter days that are a result of God's faithfulness and the many, many mercies that God has displayed in our lives in the past. That'll sustain us in difficult days. Fourth cornerstone. Now we're moving. Daniel's requests are in line with God's glory. He's concerned with God's glory. Look at the climax of this prayer in verse 18. We are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, not because we're great and glorious, no, on account of your great compassion. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. Oh, Lord, forgive our people. Oh, Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. You see that? 
listen, hear, take action. What do I do? Because I'm sick of this, God, and I want something different in my life. Now he says, and it's true, he's sick of it and he wants something different for his life. But he goes, God, listen, hear, and take action for your sake. Don't delay because your city and your people are called by your name. We bear your name. Act, save, purify. Why? Because we're known as the people of God. And I want your name to resound through us. Lord, do it for your sake. Because it would bring glory to your name that your people were delivered by your hand. Now, there's this sense in which Daniel is saying, we hear this, God, you ruined your reputation when you sent us into exile, when you allowed the Babylonians to devastate and capture us. You, you purposed that your reputation would be ruined, that we would be led to repentance. Do you understand what I'm saying there? God, you allowed your reputation to be ruined, that we would be driven to repentance. He did this with Christ on the cross. He didn't send Jesus with a conquering sword, right? First Corinthians says it's foolishness to those who are lost in a way, in a sense, to the perspective of the world. It ruins the reputation of God for one to come and say, I'm the son of God and be hung on a, a cross. But he did so, why? To lead us to repentance. And now Daniel says what? Now restore your reputation for your own sake. Can I be candid? There's a skeptic in me at all times that is warring to come out. And the skeptic in me was, was really desiring to hop out in this moment when I read this prayer and say, well, why can't I do this anytime I'm in a pickle? And just say, God, I'm in a pickle. Would you get me out of it? For your glory, Lord, would you get me out of the trouble? For your glory, I'll tell everybody you did it. If you just get me out of this device that I've entrapped myself in. I've done that. I'm sure you've done that too. You swam out too far into the ocean of sin, and now you're in trouble and you're like drowning, and you say, God, if you'll just save me, I'll tell everyone how you did this. So how do we know Daniel's not manipulating God? How do we know that, that Daniel is genuinely in line with God's glory and not just trying to get out of the trouble that they're in? Two reasons why. They're the things that we've already said. First, because Daniel's prayer is rooted in God's words. He already knows from the book of Jeremiah that their exile will be 70 years. He knows they will be delivered, right? Why does he need to pray about their deliverance if he knows they will be delivered two years from now? His concern isn't, God, will you deliver us? It's God, will you deliver us in such a way that you are glorified in it? Does that make sense? His concern is for God's glory. Second, Daniel's prayer, for the most part, 11 out of 19 or like 17 verses, is confession. He's done the hard work of humbling himself, of pouring himself out, of emptying himself, of saying, all right, nothing hidden, no schemes of man, no controls. I'm laying it all out. I know my depravity, I know how weak we are as a people and how badly we need you. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God, I confessed. And the confession has two sides. It's agreeing with God about yourself and it's agreeing with God about himself. Does that make sense? It's agreeing about the true condition of me and the true condition of God. He's done that hard work so there is no manipulation left in him if there was any in the first place. 
He's honestly concerned, God, when you deliver us, how you deliver us, as you deliver us, do it in a way that brings great glory to your name. John Piper said, God is committed with explosive passion to the glory of his name and the truth, the truth of his reputation. Think about that. He will not let his name be made a byword indefinitely. He will not have confidence in this. If you have been called by his name, live by his name, not just with your lips but with your lives. Seek refuge and peace in his name. Give glory to his name and pray God's name would be glorified because of his care and his provision and his, his uh, shaping and his purifying and his healing and his empowering of his people. That the truth would be seen. That we would do good and be good and he would get all of the glory for that. Remember last Sunday I told you that prayer is, is not so much an act. It's not a, as Daniel prayed, it wasn't a prescription of legalism. Pray three times a day with these four points. And that's how you prove yourself to God and how you prove yourself to one another. No, this wasn't a prescription. This, was just, this is just a description of a man who at the very center had a life of integrity, I think because his life was grounded in the very heart of who he was with a dependency a total dependency upon God no matter what he faced in his life. No matter what he faced when he woke up, he knew he needed to talk to God about it. And whatever happened in the morning, whatever troubles may come, he knew he needed to, to talk to God about it in the middle of the day. And whatever, whatever heat, whatever trouble came in the afternoon, even if it was great stuff in the afternoon, God, he wanted to talk to God about it in the evening before he laid down. And these four things that he centered his prayer on, I, I think really are the key to unlocking powerful prayers in difficult days because they reminded Daniel. They reminded Daniel of who he was and who the Lord was and how the faithfulness of the Lord will overcome for his people. That his promises for his people are sure and steady and nothing, nothing will shake that. It allowed Daniel for all of the, for 70 years, as a conquered person in a very strange situation, to not absorb the surrounding culture, but to be absorbed by the love of God. And I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you to look at these four prayer points and to begin practicing them in your prayer life. And I want to do that this morning together because I don't want to just send you out and say, hey, good luck with this. I want you to, to try it here first. And some of you are, are deep in difficult days right now, and some of it is because of sin, and some of it is because of sickness. Some of it is because of, of confusion about what may come next. Some of it, I mean, we've been through a whole season of lamenting over the last month. Some of it is because things just aren't as they should be. And you cling to the promise that they will be. I want you to focus maybe just on one thing this morning. And maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for someone in your life, someone you love. And you go, I just know that the deep place that they're in is just so painful for them. This morning, I'm going to intercess for them. I'm going to pray for them using these four prayer points as a guide. Will you throw these up on the, the screen for them? And we're going to take a few minutes and do this together. And I'm not going to let you leave and, until we have just a moment to practice. And I want to encourage you to keep this as a habit in your prayer life for a season. And just see how it opens you to experiencing and welcoming the power of God in difficult days. I'm going to begin a prayer and then I'm going to walk off and leave this to you. God. 
Your word says you are near to the brokenhearted. Prophecy about Jesus says that he binds up our wounds. And Jesus, before you left this earth, you said we would have many difficult days. And you promised that you would be with us always. In fact, you promised the Father would send another helper like you, another one like you, the Holy Spirit, who would guide us in all truth and help us. And so based upon your promises, God, would you help us today? We know many days we wake up and we go through our day and and I act like I don't need you. I forget how badly I need you. Lord, I am so prone to be the king of my own castle and to deny you the throne that you earned on the cross. You've forgiven me. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, And it promises, it promises that you're working all things together for my good, to make me more like Jesus. And so would you do that for your glory this morning? And as, as, as our church, as your church prays this morning in the room and in their homes, would you do that this morning? Would you glorify yourself by purifying your church and by teaching us to rely on you more? Now, church, this is your time to pray.